0: Welcome to Unashamed Unafraid, a show unashamed about sexual addiction recovery and unafraid of coming into Christ for healing. Where we talk
1: about real recovery stories, answer anonymous questions with experts, and share resources that actually work. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your co-host, James. And we are Unashamed Unafraid. Steve. James. I cannot believe that we are sitting in the same room as Mr. Magic Mark. It is so awesome to have him here on the show.
0: Stop it. I cannot. I This is one of the only people in my life that truly leaves me speechless mm-hmm. almost like all the time. On a
1: regular basis. Yeah.
0: Like I just can't even... My ADHD, my faster than normal, as much as I think I know or places I've gone you will not. And, 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 in fact, the truth is uh, all of the routes, and I'm going to attempt to not get emotional right now about this. When people are saying, how do you know this? How did you change your perspective? How did you figure this out? Like, that's where I, I will say I learned, I have my gifting from God. How I learned to actually use it. Magic Mark. That's
1: awesome. Tender. And I have known him much you know for a much shorter time than you have and have been blessed by him personally just in my own life and by him through you as well. Like you picking that up and and passing that on. So Mark, thank you for and, being here.
0: And the way the way that Mark challenges and um is kind to me is the beautiful gift so we took on a topic that's very charged in the recovery community of codependency which a lot of people have a lot of different things around and don't Mm -hmm. know how to talk about it and um, so i knew this is a topic that mark could totally knock all the pins down for us full strike which he did with total grace and boldness amen to that and so with that we'll invite you to get in the episode with us and magic mark Magic Mark. What up? So I don't know if anyone, I can't, I don't even know how to paint yourself into context. Cause I don't know how to explain the magic. This is the only way I can explain Mark. I, I introduce who Mark is to people. And then when they actually meet him, they're like, well, he has a lot to live up to. And I've told Mark, I actually have such a confidence in that and a smugness because I know Mark delivers every time, and people are like, Whoa, his magic blew me away. And I'm like, I know.
2: Yeah, I got nothing to say to that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, for those who don't know you,
2: Mark, who are you? Oh. So, I think what I would start with in answering the question of who am I is I am someone who has spent the last 40 years trying to figure that out, and I have had to break the mold of what the world told me who I am and how I'm supposed to be, and a lot of my self-discovery process has been a process of unbecoming who the world told me to be so that I can step into how what God made me to be.
0: And what did God make you to be, Magic Mark?
2: Magic Mark, a healer, <clears throat> someone who um, has the ability to love well and receive love well and to know that I'm worthy of the love that I give and the love that I receive.
0: And um, tell us about, as you would say, the alphabet soup of letters behind your name.
2: Um. So that's what I do, not who I am. You asked uh-huh. me, who am I? I know. So, what I do in the world is I am a therapist who specializes in addiction, shame, and recovery. Um, forged out of my own recovery process from trauma, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, I actually still use rock and roll, but that was supposed to be funny. Neither of you laughed. I thought it was actually funnier when we didn't give it to you. It was just really weird and awkward. I need you guys to work with me. Um, You're really a terrible audience (laughs) right now. Hopefully the people at home find me significantly more funny than you. Try the meat, though. Mark will be here all night. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget to tip the bar staff. All right. All right. So yeah, I've got uh, a ton of uh, credentials after my name. Um, Everything from being a master addiction counselor, certified experiential therapist, a licensed professional counselor, I a nationally certified counselor, just a bunch of stuff. But that just, quite frankly, gives me permission to be in the room. And that's what all those letters allow me to do, is to be in the room. And once I'm given access to the room. I leave all that stuff behind because those letters aren't what heal people. It's my heart. Yeah. And those letters don't define me.
0: Yeah. So one of the topics, um, one of the ways I describe you to people is people like, I've been to therapy or I've heard about this and I'm like, yeah, yeah. but then like Mark will talk about it and then you'll actually get it and then it'll change your life. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those big ones, um, the conversations that you and I have had that really I didn't. So I was in a therapy community that did not use the term codependency and saw it as derogatory. Like that's kind of a mean word that we use. That's like, that's old school back when we were doing therapy back in the day. We don't really use that. It's kind of yucky. Um, And so I meet you and there's a very different... Understanding of codependency, and I think this was so as we were just talking before, like what topic to cover, and, and working you know with Mark out of all the things. Uh, and this is prop like this is one of the most misunderstood, I'd say, top five misunderstood things about recovery. And one that, as someone who's been to a lot of therapy, read many of the books, participated in 12 Step, done a lot of different things, like huge blind spot for at least me personally, and I don't know. James, if that was the same for you, that yeah, was a really big miss for me. Um, I had, I had learned early on
1: why we don't say codependence was it was because it made uh, the people who so my dad was an alcoholic, so people thought that because my mom. There was something inherently wrong with my mom. That was why she married an alcoholic. So it almost made it sound like it was her fault. So that was my understanding of why we didn't use codependence anymore. But as um, I've learned from Mark and others about codependence, I'm like, oh, it's for sure real. And it shows up all over the place. But I needed some, a new definition. I needed to know what it was, really, other than what it wasn't or wasn't supposed to be.
2: Yeah, you know, so if you look at the history of the word, right, even before the word codependence was on the scene, it was called a co-addict, right? And so the research really around all that initiated with dad being the drunk, mom being the chief enabler, and um, how that relationship needed to operate in order for dysfunction to continue. And the more we research it, Uh, the more we realize that it isn't just in the person who's in relationship with the addict, but really anyone who's in relationship with addiction or dysfunction creates a set of circumstances that causes me to use my relationships to self-regulate. So often, like in pop culture, when you go and get someone a glass of water, they'll say, oh, that was so codependent. Well, the going and getting a glass of water is not codependent. It has nothing to do with a glass of water. Codependency is about what are the things that propel me to get the water? What's my motive? And so codependency is really about when I use the people, places, and things in my life in order to regulate myself so that if you are anxious— If I sense or make up that you are anxious, then I need to take care of your needs so that I'm okay. So, me being codependent is about me regulating my needs in order to first take care of you.
0: So, say that slower, because one question I have with that is, you're like, that was slow. (laughs) So, for those that are slow like me, help me understand what you mean by regulation,
2: So anytime there's an internal emotional experience, (laughs) is that too slow? I'm also sarcastic.
0: We didn't notice.
2: (laughs) Now you're being sarcastic james doesn't talk much does james talk much on this podcast or? I'm, I'm not allowed i'm only given so many words i, mean, I feel per like show. i was gonna say i feel like for every hundred words steven uses there's like three mm-hmm. for james is yeah. that the tr- That's primary kind of the ratio? ratio yeah
0: do you think we
2: have a codependent relationship no i just this do you have enough space on this podcast james is there space for you
1: I feel like, uh, I, I like the space that I take so far, not maybe sounds like a cop out. No, Mark, you're like turning this into something that it's not. Um, it'll, uh, I'll show up here in a minute. I'm just waiting. I'll pounce on you here in a minute. Just give me some time.
2: You just took off your sock. I know. I'm getting ready. <laughs> when you take off your socks, that's when you're ready to bounce. <laughs> yes.
0: As James undresses, that's when we know he's ready to go. This is yeah. really
2: getting awkward quite, uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. No, but, you know, I think in some ways, so if the reason James doesn't talk as much is to take care of you, Steve, that would be codependence. Right. And if the reason James isn't talking is because you, James, need to make yourself small so that Steven gets to feel big, that's codependence. If the reason you're not talking is because there isn't space for you to have your process and therefore there's a betrayal of self in order to make other people feel more comfortable, that would be codependent, right? But if the reason why you're not talking is, or as much as Stephen is simply because you have the capacity to hold space for other people to show up, that is not codependent. So it has nothing to do with how much you talk, but has everything to do with the why and the what behind it.
0: Now, James and I have to internally check our codependency before we talk
2: right. No, I'm, I'm good with holding the space. Yeah.
0: I think that's very accurate yeah. of you actually. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy holding the space um, and engaging and listening. Um, it's a place I know that I can learn way more about you from listening to you than I can
2: about you listening to me. Well, and and that's my experience of you, which is why I knew that I could go there with Mm -hmm. you is because I already knew where we were going to land, but it was such a great teachable moment, right? And I think that that's the beauty that you, James, bring is you bring in the space that you hold, there's a ton of grace and there's a ton of just warmth and generosity. And it comes from an abundance of you being rooted in yourself, which allows other people to show up. But if you were unrooted or dysregulated, meaning ungrounded, not connected, um, and having your own emotional experience, but shutting that down, that's emotional dysregulation, right? is when I'm having an, an internal emotional experience, but my insides don't match my outsides. So on the surface, I look, it's like the duck effect. Right? So on the surface, I'm calm, cool, and collected. But just underneath the surface, there is the feet that are going in a frenetic standpoint. And part of what the codependent will do is make the surface look calm, cool, and collected, take care of everything in the pond while it inside is churning and burning, which is why a lot of the physical manifestations of codependency will be things like. Anxiety. Lyme, anxiety, Lyme disease, um, uh, hypertension, uh, um, autoimmune disorders, um, things like uh, an abundance of um, inflammation in the body. So, literal physical manifestations, not just emotional manifestations. Correct. In fact, there's a ton of research that would show that most physical symptomology has its roots in the emotional space.
0: Preach. And in fact, I love using this here and now right now because the grace you named is actually that's one of the greatest gifts I can't not get emotional about because that's one of the greatest gifts that James and our brotherhood has given me because I feel like I'm so, has so much anxiety, right? All of the symptoms. And I feel like so much, um, you know, like splashes up onto the shore and James just kind of lets it dry out instead of it just kind of splashing back. And we've had a lot of moments where it's like that, like holding that space, right? We talk about therapy all the time. And then I just kind of work out my process. Like a lot of, I think my codependency issues, I've had a lot of healing in our friendship and relationship because, and this is kind of the next question I would ask you is why do we choose codependency? Cause even just the very definition, right? Like I make sure you get fed and then for some reason I think I'm going to feel full. So it's like, when you just say that intellectually, it's like, what, What person would do that? Like any monkey could figure out, like me making sure Mark gets dinner doesn't get me fed. But yet, it's such a trap for all of us. So what what sucks us into codependency?
2: Well, the problem with your question is you asked me, why do we choose codependency? And we don't choose it. The problem with answering your question is that you're assuming we use logic and reason and that these are conscious choices, when in actuality, we fall into a system of dysfunction and our approach to addressing and being in the system is, it's a defensive accommodation. So, we are accommodating the system in which we are in through taking care of it. And so, we get trained, usually before the age of 10, on how to be in the world to make sense of it, and then we repeat these patterns across time. So, in my experience of 17 years of being in this world, most of how we show up as adults are rooted before the age of 10. Believe that, see it, lived it, yeah,
1: truth.
0: Well, and so I think of, I think for me, right, in my experiences, uh, so one of my payoffs is where I fit in the system was um, a hero-child dynamic, you know, being told I'm the kid that doesn't have any problems, so then learn really quick, be the kid that doesn't have any problems and get loved. And a lot of it around performance things, right? If I'm performing, then great, everyone will love you and you can, and so it's like just orient to that, and so I always think of um, like that thing, like a fish doesn't know it's in water, right? Is this we just didn't know a different way. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. And a child in that system is going to need to be big, loud, take up a lot of space so that it can get seen. And its needs need to be really big in order to get met because there wasn't space before. And that the only way to be rewarded is in my goodness. So of course I'm going to do whatever I have to do to hide my badness so that you only see my goodness because that's the only parts of me that are lovable. The only part of problem in that is that which we resist will persist.
0: Tell me what you mean by that.
2: Meaning that if we don't deal with our, our stuff, it will deal with us. And so <clears throat> I kind of I can remember uh, playing in the ocean with a beach ball, right? And uh, being in the ocean and trying to submerge the beach ball. And inevitably, a wave would come and cause it, the beach ball to pop out sideways in a way that was unexpected and uncontrollable. And my, pa- I do the same with my pain. I will shove it down and my pain will come out sideways in a way that is unexpected and uncontrollable. And that was my strategy because it's the strategy of the culture in which we live in is that anytime pain starts to come up just shove it back down and we learn to shove it down before 10 because and how depending on what our how our family handled conflict what our how our family addressed pain mm-hmm. the level of perfectionism that was in the household for a thousand and eight different reasons yeah we learn our relationship with pain conflict performance, goodness, badness, based on the culture of our home. So it it can look all different. And one of the things that if you only look at a part of a person's story, we can easily say, well, gosh, why does that person do that? What, you know, what's wrong with them? Or, or gosh, that's such weird behavior. Why do they do that? But the reality is everyone in the context of their story makes sense. So, in fact, if there's any part of you that feels like, why do I keep getting to the same pattern over and over again? Why do I keep getting into the same relationship with people that I'm intimate with or with work? Why do I keep getting into the same relationship with carbohydrates? Why do I keep getting into the same relationship? The best way to know where your patterns or the answer to your pattern is to just follow the route back. And where did I first learn this? How else in my life do I feel this way? So, if I'm struggling with my boss, where else in what other relationships have I felt the same way as I do with my boss in other relationships of my life? And I will continue to repeat those patterns until I actually deal with the root causes of them. Because we repeat what we don't repair.
0: Yeah. And I, I love that, like, I think that's a beautiful way to really make sense of like introspection or just seeing my perspective. Cause I think often I fall into the loop of, I'm like, why is Mark acting like that? And why is Mark doing this? And why is Mark doing that? Or why is James doing this or doing that? Or why did this person cut me off in traffic and making it more like circumstantial Mm -hmm. and logical and trying to get there instead of being like, why is it that I lose my mind Mm -hmm. when someone has cut me off in traffic? And when has this previously taken place in my life? Because I think there's a lot of actually empowerment to that, instead of everything happening to me. Yeah,
1: and I like that. Um, I like that you corrected Steve on choosing codependence because, to your, in that moment, you're you're not choosing to be pissed off at the, the guy that cut you off in the traffic. Like it's just your body responding to what it knows what to do, right? That's much more nervous system or muscle memory, as you've called it, Mark,
2: rather than this feeling like this automatic choice. Right. I do not actually have access to choice when I'm in reaction. I am in how I am, my physiology, literally my physiology is reacting based on strategies of the past that allowed me to survive previously, now, part of a conscious adult has the ability to respond, right? In fact, we talk about adults having responsibility. Well, the the truest sense of that word is literally response- ability. The ability to respond appropriately to life situations. But if I am stuck in a state of fight or flight or freeze or from a polyvagal perspective, sympathetic or dorsal, I am reacting very much like a snake reacting towards you know some something it needs to attack the snake isn't choosing to bite and secrete venom it's just happening before there's any conscious thought so that's why we don't choose codependency or we don't choose addiction or we don't choose to relapse all the time sometimes we do <laughs> but sometimes we don't and the vast majority of <clears throat> what is driving our defensive accommodations or what is driving how we're showing up in the world is really about the patterns that are set in in childhood and what worked then. And so, what happens when the 43-year-old man gets activated is that six-year-old little boy says, oh, wait, I know how to do this. Go ahead. And the 43-year-old adult goes in the back seat and the six-year-old takes up the driver's seat and says, oh, I got this. I know how to do this. This is how we survive. And then we crash, right? And then the 43-year-old, once we've crashed, has to take you know action because, oh, we're, we're in another accident. And this 43-year-old gets the car out of the ditch and drives a little bit longer until the six-year-old says, oh, no, this is really bad. Go ahead. And the 43-year-old gets put back in the back seat and the six-year-old takes the seat again. The resp- That's reaction. Responsibility is when the six-year-old in the back seat gets scared and says, I know how to handle this situation. The 43-year-old says, thank you so much for your service. And you have done an amazing job keeping us alive. And I'm gonna go ahead and put the seatbelt on and give you a juice box and a snack so that you can get your needs taken care of. Because when you were actually six, it was scary and you were all alone. But the cool thing about being 43 is you have me now. You're not alone. And so what worked at six years old doesn't have to continue to work at 43. And today I have some other options.
1: And so as we recognize um, these parts of us coming up that aren't serving us well, it's in times of calm retrospection that we can look at another way, examine another way when we can be Uh, we're not in a reactive state, rather we're in a planning state. When can we develop that capacity to have that conversation with that part of us that might be coming up and not showing up well, or that's reactive?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say it's in a calm state of introspection. Okay. Um, I would actually say that it is in doing our trauma work, which is often not calm. That we're able to heal the wounds of the past so that we're not bleeding all over our present. Because when we are activated and the six-year-old needs to take the driver's seat, what soothes a six-year-old is not calm introspection. I don't know if you have you ever tried to sue the six-year-old. I just tried it upstairs at dinner. It <laughs> yeah. did not work. It, the calm introspection was not weird. the key. Yeah, it's so weird. Right? So what worked with the six-year-old?
0: Um, you're assuming that I did some good parenting. You did. I watched it. Um, but I I guess the one that I go to is just is to actually be with, right? Yeah. To not shut down, but to let the energy run. To acknowledge it, right? Instead of shushing the cry, right? To... What is this acknowledging the energy and riding that emotional wave? Because it's got an end.
2: Yes, we call that attunement. Mm -hmm. You attuned to the needs of the six-year-old. And you didn't need it to be anything other than it was. You just saw it, heard it, and accepted it as it was. And then sought to meet its needs. It's the same thing for the six-year-old within us. So I don't need my six-year-old little boy to be calm and meditate. What I need is the adult to go to the six-year-old and hear it, see it, accept it, and then attend to its needs. Because no matter what, the need is not gonna go away. The 6 year old strategies may be porn, or prostitutes, or carbohydrates, or workaholism, or busyness, or social media, or perfectionism, or codependency, or whatever. Those are the strategies of the six-year-old. But what's right behind the strategy of the six-year-old is a valid need. So, if you just take away the strategy, all that's left is the need that still needs to be met. So the answer isn't just about changing my relationship with codependency or changing my relationship with porn or changing my relationship with insert blank. The answer is in meeting the needs which are valid in healthy, useful ways.
0: So I I want to paint this contextually into context because I think this is a big question.
2: I like contextually into context.
0: I thought you might. I just want to impress you Mark. Um, so, so, um, so for a lot of now I understand everyone's situation is different, but a lot of our audience, a lot of people working, right. Um, that the, the sexual addiction process happens with right. A spouse or a partner. Right. And so I know for me, it was like, when I disclosed it's this bomb goes off. Right. So I've heard a lot of people, yep. D day, the day I found out, you know, Um, my partner had an addiction and, you know, my husband had an addiction or whatever. And, um, and so I felt this, this one down position, like, I'm like, I have literally destroyed Kayla's life. So like, I need to fix what I broke. Right. Um, and so how does codependency show up in that? How does, cause I think you fast forward six months, a year, two years into recovery and that gets really like messy and gray. And it's a really hard confidence place. And I've had a lot of conversations with men like this, that it's like, how do I know this is me making repair or this is fish and water? I'm still participating in the system because there's this feeling, right? The shame is like you were the person who did the wrong thing, right? And so I know that I'm the bad guy, one down comes up. And so how, how would I navigate from that spot, if I'm
2: in that spot. So remember 9-11? I sure do. (laughs) Where were y'all for 9-11? Do you want me to age you or? Age me? I'm already aged. (laughs) I don't need you to age me.
0: It'll super age James, (coughs) but yes. I was sitting in Miss Potter's seventh grade science class. Yeah. Okay. I was at home,
1: just had gotten ready for work. And uh, then got a call from my sister-in-law to turn on the TV.
2: Mm. And what did you see on the TV? And I saw
1: smoke billowing from where the towers used to be Mm -hmm. and quickly found out, heard the story. Um, I had a child at the time and was...
2: (laughs) Was his name Steve?
1: (laughs) His name's Keller.
2: Okay. (laughs) Hi, Keller. Yep. Love you, son. Mm-hmm. So you said you turned on the TV and heard the story.
1: And, Reco- watched, and looked the, watched the story. So uh, recount the replays.
2: The, recount the story. In bullet points.
1: Yeah. Uh, turned on the TV, saw the smoke, then started to watch replays and saw a replay of a plane
2: hitting one of the towers and exploding. Mm-hmm. Um and when the uh, newscasters were talking about that, what were the commentary about it? Who were they blaming? They were...
1: I don't remember who they were blaming. Well, were they blaming the plane? No, they were blaming... they. They. I don't remember if they had... Co- Pinned it as a terrorist attack right away or not? If or if they had thought that it was an accident, no, they didn't because both of them were down. Um, No, they. they, I believe they they knew it was a terrorist attack attack at that time. So they
2: weren't blaming the plane, right? They were. Were they blaming the American pilots? No, they were blaming terrorists at the time. Yeah, and so that's and we're pretty clear on that, right? In fact, if there was a common that was blaming the plane, they probably wouldn't be on the air very long. Or if there was a commentator that was certainly blaming the American pilots, right? They wouldn't have lasted very long. They were blaming the terrorists. And I often think of addiction in that exact same way, right? The body of the addict or the person who's suffering with addiction is the American plane, the consciousness or the psyche the person is the american pilot and the addiction is the terrorist and the only way couples recover is if they can utilize that model and separate the person suffering with addiction from, from the, addiction. the addiction itself and i work with couples all the time that where the betrayal the person with betrayal trauma says i am really mad at my husband and i I'm, I'm not open to having sex with him anymore. I'm not open to connecting with him anymore because every single time I look at his face, I see the guy who had sex with the prostitute. I see the porn addict every time I look at his face. So I work with couples all the time and she's saying, no, I cannot. Anytime I see my husband, I see the addict. And part of what we have to do in that work, the only hope for the couple to find their way back to each other is to get the addiction out of the coupleship. And they have to find their ways back to each other and align against the addiction. But if either partner is interested in blaming the other, then they will be rooted in the trauma and betrayal and resentment. Now, some people will say, well, now, wait a minute, you're victim blaming because the victim has no part in it. And I'm not saying that it's anyone's fault. I'm not even saying it's the addict's fault. I'm saying addiction entered into a relationship and there was an impact on everyone around the addiction.
0: So for the betrayed spouse who's hearing this right now, that's like, oh, so this guy wrecked my life and you want to give him a hall pass?
2: Yeah, I want to give him a hall pass to recovery. And I want to give you, spouse, a hall pass to recovery. And I want you both to meet in that hallway and connect and find your way back to each other. Because what I know is that the intimacy involved in couples in recovery is so much more profound than any experience of intimacy prior to. And in fact, there's a whole group of research Around post traumatic growth, and what couples who have actually done the work say that they are having better sex, they are more emotionally, spiritually, and physically connected than they ever were even before the addiction or the prostitution or anything. Because I had to, I, the betrayed partner, had to do my work to actually look at myself to see what's my part in that. And you may have 20% of that but you got to take 100% responsibility for your 20% because the reality is it takes two to tango and it takes two to make and two to break a relationship. And I've been working with couples for 17 years and I've yet to come across a coupleship where there has been betrayal trauma involved, that that was the first sign of danger in a relationship. If we really get honest, oftentimes what's going on It's less like a volcano and more like an iceberg. And what we're talking about is the tip of the iceberg. That's the addiction. That's the fact that you left your shoes out and didn't, you know, do the dishes. The stuff that we're actually talking about is never the stuff that we're running into. And so if you think of an iceberg, it's the stuff that's below the surface, That we keep crashing into. And until we start having below the surface conversations, there is zero chance of healing and zero chance of moving forward. Now, if I am going to just spend the rest of my life in a relationship being blamed and beat up for my addiction, then I also have to take a look at that as the person who's in recovery. Because I then, there's a part of me that believes I have to serve a life sentence, getting beat up for what I did, which means then I'm, I'm now betraying myself. And I'm also betraying my spouse because all she sees when she looks at me is the addict, which keeps me imprisoned in that state. Now, I, I get what I'm saying may be like really provocative, and I'm really okay with that. Because recovery, I want to provoke you into action to heal because I'm committed to freedom. I'm not committed to calm introspection, which is why calm introspection isn't what actually heals people. But I'm interested in provoking you into movement to start to take a look at how, is, how are these words landing and resonating.
0: So, put that in, because uh, another one of the big things is time frame. Right. Because one of the things you always hear people talk about, um, which bugs the crap out of me, because I'm a Mark gospel guy, right? Is like time, right? So you always hear people that's like, well, you can forgive them over time. There's a lot of relapse and recovery, and over time it will happen. And I know as someone in recovery, I got frustrated because it felt like the life sentence you just subscribed. Like I'm like, and then in my fish and water, I'm like, how do I know when it's been time? Like, is there a parole hearing? Like, does, does God show up or is there a, a, a website you go to and put in your info and they tell you if you've paid the time yet or like, what is it? So how would you frame time around this conversation?
2: Yeah, it's not time. It's a toll that's required to pay. And so I've seen that toll paid in a weekend And I've also seen it take decades. So it's not about time, but a price must be paid. And the price is, I have to be willing to let go of my pain so that I may find, make space and grace for the healing that God can make possible if I do pay the price.
0: So what would you say are the steps to paying that price? So if I'm right, the betrayed spouse and I'm like, okay, Mark, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Let's get empowered. Let's get provocative. And I want to pay that toll. Mm -hmm. What would you say the steps are for the betrayed spouse? Then we'll do the, I have to first,
2: well, both people have to first take the finger that they're pointing across the table and point it at themselves. I have to start to take a look at, okay, for sure he or the person who had the addiction, let's say they take 80% of the blame. And I can spend my life on looking across the street at that 80% and making sure that you see every single pothole in your side of the street which I actually have no power on. So I'm going to continue to be frustrated and resentful, or I could begin to take a look at, okay, I got to take a look at my 20% because that's all I have control on. And so I got to take 100% responsibility for my 20%. And so that's the first step is I got to take a look at me. How did I set this up? What was my part? When did I stop asking for my needs? When did I become complacent? When did I become willing to accept my spouse who is dissociated, checked out, and disengaged? When did that become okay for me to sleep next to someone whose body was there, but their spirit was not? When did that become okay for me? I set that up. And I got to take a look at owning that 20%, which is painful, It is not okay to sleep next to an empty shell of a human being. Period. Full stop. It's never okay. So I have to be willing to just take a look at that. And that is provocative.
0: And for the ones struggling with addiction, how would you phrase that?
2: I got to start to take a look at when did I become so scared to show up? When did I become willing to accept an orgasm over spiritual, integrated, embodied connection? When did I stop actually believing I was worthy of human connection? When did I actually settle for having a temporary fix rather than the struggle of putting one foot in front of the other to build the life that I want? I had to I have to start to take a look at when did it not be okay for me to say I'm scared I'm feeling really inadequate I'm feeling really afraid of initiating sex with you because the last 3 times I did you said you had a headache And I knew you didn't have a headache. I just didn't think you wanted me. So it was easier to put on some porn and masturbate rather than risk another betrayal and rejection. I got to take a look at when I became willing to settle orgasm over embodied emotional connection. And when those two people come into the room at the same time, And say, yeah, I got to own this part. I got to own this part. And I take 100% responsibility for this part. No more and no less. And then I'm willing to offer up my heart. Or I'm not willing to offer up my heart, but I got to be honest. And real is better than perfect. No one I know does this perfectly. Perfectly what there is, there's no such thing. In fact, I think that Hollywood and Disney really screw up our ability to have a sense of what a healthy relationship looks like because we as men and we as women think that when we meet Prince Charming, who doesn't, by the way, have a name, so therefore it's, we, it's, it's all of us. Role. It's a yeah. shame roll, right? <laughs> yes. like, you know, if it was Prince, you know, Prince William or something, I go, Okay, my name's not William. But you know, Prince Charming means that it's all of us. So we think we gotta show up on a white night on a white horse galloping in to go wake Cinderella up or wake Sleeping Beauty, whichever one was asleep, wake them up, right? And so, all of a sudden, there's the kiss and the orchestra swells and the fireworks go off. And then that's the end of the movie. No one actually sees the next morning when the Prince Charming wakes up with morning breath and how to navigate that. So, when we begin to realize that there is no such thing as a perfect relationship, all that there is is the person you're willing to do your life with, that's all that's required for a marriage to continue. There just has to be a willingness to come back home, first to yourself and then to each other.
0: Uh, What you can't see if you're the audience is the number of mind blown, you know, the hand to the head, Uh, a couple are happening behind Mark's head and a couple are happening in front of him. So um, one of the things that has been difficult for me and a lot of times when I talk to people gets expressed is uh, that recovery timing doesn't happen at the same time. Right, and so it right those those steps that you quite right like those answers like I've had it happen in a weekend. That's a beautiful grace that it they were both able to be there at the same time doing it, and so whether it's a month apart, a week apart, years apart, um, what's the dialogue you have go in your head right, or how I get in my body like how do you do the courage to break right my finger pointing at me, my cycle of codependency. Cause I can't say like, I can't be like, Hey Kayla, are you ready? Cause I think I'm ready for this part. Are you ready? Great. We're both ready. Okay. Uh, no. So I know like one for me, a ton of caretaking, a ton of that's how I did, you know, my addiction self, you know, the Mm -hmm. dual life thing was doing that. And so I remember like Kayla could say we could be laying in bed and she could say, I'm thirsty. Just say that out loud. I would get out of bed, I would go find her favorite water bottle, clean it out, put ice in it, fill it up in the fridge and bring it in. And the action with the motive, right? My motive, 150% pure, unadulterated codependency, right? Like that motive was not in kindness, in love, because she'd had a long day, in connection. It was totally about managing the system. So if I'm laying in bed, and I hear those words come out and I'm doing my work. Like how in that moment when I, right, emotionally get f- flooded, right? The like, kind like, ah, I'm not ready. Like, how do I have the courage to really like break out?
2: Just roll over and go to sleep.
0: Well, yeah, but how do you have the courage to do that when you spent the last umpteenth
2: years getting up and getting the water? Well, you got to take a look at what do you actually believe about the person that you are in a codependent relationship with. Because what is required to believe about them is that in some way, shape, or form, they do not have the capacity or ability to take care of themselves, or if you are not in service to them, you will not be in relationship with them. So, the only value you bring is what you can do. So, you get to stay in this marriage if you continue to get the glass of water, is what you need to believe, rather than, I'm in this relationship because I am a valued partner full stop not because of what I do or what I can bring or how good my water is but just because of my heart so to for
0: guys like me slowing it down so um first a question I can ask myself is do they have the capacity to do this because like my five-year-old boy often does not have the capacity to do things.
2: No, it's not about them at all. Whenever I feel the impulse to get her a glass of water, I need to say, what do I need right now? It's not about her and her needs. I'm using her as a distraction from my own needs. So I might be thirsty. And the answer is, what am I actually thirsty for? What do I need? Because I'm using her as a distraction to meet my own needs. Right.
0: So I get flared. She, she says, I'm thirsty. Pfft, it
2: hits me. And the first question I should ask is, What do I need right now? Yeah. What's going on? What just popped up for me? What's going on with me right now? Mm-hmm. So what's going on when she says she's thirsty? What's going on with you?
0: <sighs> yeah. So I'm, I'm doing that right now. So asking myself that question, What's going on with me? Um, I think for me, it gets, it's just what I brought up about childhood earlier. It gets really quick to just shame, right? The shame of like, oh, my value in this relationship is now on the line. Right. To what you say to that, if I don't get the water, I've not wanted as a partner.
2: Right. So no matter how much water you get, you're the one who's thirsty. And what you're right. thirsty for is acceptance. Yeah. So it has nothing to do with the water for her. It has everything to do with how you are starved and dehydrated for love.
0: And then my next step, just trying to follow what you're saying, is then to get that need met. In an which,
2: appropriate and healthy, useful, right. sustainable way.
0: Right. Because going and looking at porn in short term would meet that need. but Temporarily. Long, right. That's right. what I'm saying. Temporarily, but long term is... a at least for me, was a very poor strategy. (laughs) Right. So,
2: I often say addiction is short-term pleasure, long-term pain, and recovery is short-term pain, long-term pleasure. So, I have to be willing to be painstaking, which means willing to take the pain of the early processes of my recovery, which means I have to sit in the discomfort of knowing that she's thirsty- and I have to sit there and take a look at how am I dehydrated?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because what I believe about my spouse is if she needs me to go get a glass of water and she's going to die, if not, then that's, un- that's not sustainable. So then I, when, I show, when, I, when she actually is thirsty and I miss a glass of water, the pain of that will send me out to go get high on porn right so what i need to do is allow her and trust her that when she's thirsty she knows how to get her own water and i need to figure out how to get the nourishment that i need so that from a space of overflow we can pour into each other's life not me trying to fish at her well to get my needs met yeah so i need to be so filled and she needs to be so filled that we overflow into each other and then if we have kids that flows into them. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think that's the, at least for me, the hard part, I think I'm not alone is to stop on that need. I want to move because I've been trained. I want to move to the next bullet point, the next step, or I also want, because I've been asked this question a lot. Right. So tell me the five ways I can meet my need. It's like, well, I don't know. How does your need get met, right? A need for spirituality or a need for, there's a million ways it can get met and what might work for me may not work for James or for you, right? Mm -hmm. So what I need for my need for acceptance might be a worship song. And James is like, I'm worship songed out. That would not hit me at all.
2: Yeah, but those are all like the byproducts. Right, that's what I'm saying. The the answer truly is, what do you need? Love, period. Yeah. Full stop. We all have one need, really. Is just love? But how you get to getting that need met is going to be unique and individual. Absolutely. And that may change based on the relationship. So the love I get from you, Stephen, is different than the love I get from my spouse. Right. Period. Right? They're both pouring into me and they're different. Yeah. Now, if I come to you seeking the love I get from my spouse, or if I go to my spouse expecting the love I get from you, that's when things are going to get sideways and crossed. But – I have to have this awareness of how do I get my needs met, irregardless of what's going on. And ideally, I'm finding connection to myself, I'm finding connection to other people, I'm finding connection to my world, and I'm finding connection to spirit. Those are the four pathways of connection. And I have to consistently, especially as a person in recovery— or a human, I have to consistently take a look at what are my relationship with those four pathways of connection to self, others, my world, and spirit. And so that's one practical way of being able to take a look at that. Yeah. yeah. James, what do you have to say?
1: I intuited that you were going to say that and... um. Started to panic about a question that I was going to ask you, yeah. knowing that my mind was too busy thinking about what you were already
2: talking about, so it didn't have time to formulate a question. <laughs> but, so, what do you want to know? How is this all landing on you? Um,
1: it's just brilliant, and it may, and it makes complete sense to me. Um, it, and so, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the ways in which you know, she's so kind of putting into context how it might show up for him and I'm right. recognizing the ways how how it shows up for me. And in me it's it's very different. Like I'm not I don't do the caretaking mm-hmm. um in, in the same way that that he does, but one thing I notice I continue to fall back in over and over again is um if I start to feel like I'm being attacked or blamed or someone's They start saying something, and I start hearing something different than what they're really saying, Mm -hmm. and it starts to perceive, come across as an attack. I will go into shutting them down, Uh being like, "Okay, fine, I'm out," Mm -hmm. you know, and or great, don't do it then, or or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. rather than holding space, which is something that I generally do well until. I feel like I'm getting attacked or blamed and then I'm out. Right. That's a place I have a hard
2: time holding Mm -hmm. anymore. Absolutely. And I think that that's a pandemic. I think that's the real pandemic in our country right now. Yeah. Right. Is, oh, wait, I disagree with you. Okay, fine. I'm out. Yeah. Rather than holding the tension of leaning into, can we have disagreement without disconnection? Yeah. And part of the wounding of my childhood is anytime we had disagreement connection was threatened so if you disagree with me then i'm not willing to love you anymore likewise that was very much the way i felt right growing up absolutely and so that's threatened every time right absolutely
0: and and james you survived by staying small totally i had to right that was in the codependent system mine was get big get big get big right mine was you must stay small
2: right right Absolutely, or connection is threatened. Totally. Yeah, and so that also happens not only in our country, but happens in churches and communities and companies and couples, coupleships as mm-hmm. well. That if we're going to have disagreement or conflict, then love is on the line. And that is love, that is intimate warfare. Yeah,
1: I mean, there, I most of... For example, like the people that come into my office, most of them are conflict avoidant. And I, you know, I see it enough in myself and I'm doing this enough. I'm like, I spot it all over the place. And Mm -hmm. it's like, this is killing you because there's a major cost to avoiding
2: the conflict. Right. And if I don't have a solid enough sense of self, then there is no space for disagreement. Yeah. But if I know who I am, whose I am, and where I am, then all of a sudden, I can hold the tension of your conflict, and it doesn't cost me anything because who I am is not up for negotiation. Right. Love is who I am, period. So, if you choose to disengage from me, then that is your choice, and you get to do that, and I'm here, period. And it doesn't cost me anything because my identity is not up for negotiation. Right.
0: So, Mark, to close here, our episode here, just because uh, one of the ways I describe you, right, and love you is that you do bold and grace so well. And I didn't know those could coexist because of all my shame messages till I met you. It's one of the gifts I gave most of the gifts you gave me, was a, was a vision for that. So, to that human betrayed spouse, struggling with addiction, who is just because of the shame of the system, they're like not taking in the love, right? If we had him sitting here right now with us, what would you tell them?
2: That you don't actually have to take in the love. You just have to remember that you are love already. And it's like, you you kept talking about the fish in the water. But we also forget that the fish is also made up of water. And if we can actually connect to not only the water that we're all living in, but the water that's also living within us. And to remember that we are far more alike than we are different. And so when I can connect to you. And the part of me that I see in you and the part of you that you see in me, and I can get curious about you, then all of a sudden I can hold space for my story and your story. And then there's history, right? And so, first and foremost, what I would say to anyone sitting in front of me is that you already are okay. You just have to get to a point where it's okay to be okay. And that in and of itself is a process.
0: Magic Mark, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: A gift.
1: Always. Looking forward to the next time.
0: So um, remember, give us five stars on iTunes. That's how the world judges us. Invite you to follow us at Unashamed and Afraid, Instagram and Facebook. Um, If you are in need of help working on your codependency, if any of this ring true to you, we invite you to go to unashamedunafraid.com slash scholarships to apply for a scholarship because you are okay right where you are and loved as Mark said, and the work we want to help and support you. So um, you are worthy of that scholarship and hope that you join us. And if you'd like to donate to help fund those scholarships and to also be able to listen to the bonus content here with us that we're about to have with Mark, where we ask all the additional questions, Um, then we invite like what questions, Steve? Are we going to be addressing? Well, tell them a couple of yours that they're going to get in the bonus content. All right. So some of the questions that we
1: plan on addressing with you, Mark, are: What if you can't remember those root causes? And or the memory only goes back so far and we have a hard time digging up to that root, and we can't really see. Um, Maybe something along the lines of what if we're really embarrassed and ashamed of that little six year old boy and we just don't even want to go there. Or um, what if breaking codependency, we literally feel like that is going to kill us.
0: What are you know and you know some other things yeah, so if you heavy. want to join us be it outsiders our outsiders are bold accepting unashamed we invite you to go to unashamedfracom slash donate um, uh, 501c3 nonprofit all of it marks making faces at me after all that so anyways we're a non-profit tax deductible all the things that go with that as you know um and 100 percent of that money um goes to funding the scholarships we're going you know we as i've said many times jason uh does this for free we lock him in a basement until he puts out these episodes and then he can see his family and his kids and go to work so we appreciate jason all that he does and until we're with you again we invite you to remain unashamed